today on Ag News Daily. This year, um, planting went really, really well uh, for most annual crops, just because April and especially May were dry. Um, and so we had, we didn't have a ton of replant. There was some because of some late cold, but um, mostly things went pretty well. And, and that dryness really, I think, encouraged a lot of good root growth, which really helped in the end. Welcome to the podcast, listeners. Today's November 8th, Wednesday, hump day, Delaney, middle of the week. It feels like it's been a long week so far. <laughs> We're only halfway through. I think uh, that's probably the feeling for a lot of our listeners as the fall harvest drags on. However, there's still got good weather. Wind advisories is about the only thing we've got in the forecast. North Dakota's got gusty conditions. Sustained winds from 25 to 35 mile an hour with gusts up to 50. That'll be an effect until 6 p.m. Otherwise, it's pretty much dry across the Midwest and Southern Plains. Again, that continues with low relative humidity being the focus of fire safety risks. So continue to keep an eye out there. But otherwise, a pretty quiet weather day. Well, that's good. I was hoping no snow would hit me here. As I'm in Salt Lake City today, we'll be speaking with the group later this afternoon. But yesterday and the day before, I was in Oklahoma City, Tanner, for the American Bankers Association's annual meeting. And yesterday, had the pleasure of having Representative Glenn take center stage, or G.T. Thompson, as others like to refer to him as. And while he was on stage, Tanner, he spent a lot of time talking about the progress on the next farm bill. And as we've started to see in the headlines now, he did indicate it would, of course, be done in 2024 and potentially mixed messages there as it might even need to be extended into 2025, which certainly is not ideal there for folks wanting that new farm bill. We've also seen, of course, uh, as of this week, that He's really kind of pushing the pace here to try to get committees to agree that we do need a short-term extension here for the farm bill that needs to last for basically the next year. And he thinks that he said he knows a lot of people think that a long-term extension means, oh, you're not doing your job. But he said that's not the case. There's a lot of pieces that have to come together just so to be able to get the farm bill pulled together. It has to go, of course, through Congress. It has to go through USDA to review and the Office of Management and Budget. So he said there's a lot of pieces that get put into place during this farm bill that maybe folks may not know about. And that's why it's going to take such a long time. But he's really aiming here for a one-year extension, going to be working with Congress to get that done and hopes for the best to have it done in 2024. Yeah, I had seen that as well. I think there's no surprise to our listeners there. We did get a ruling that we could have carbon storage on forest service land. Representatives of uh, multiple parties are excited and concerned all at the same time. The Forest Service is barred from authorizing exclusive and perpetual use of occupancy due to land use by outsiders, and this prohibition would apply to carbon storage. U.S. Forest Service prepare, proposed a change in its regulations on Monday that would allow the consideration of carbon dioxides being injected one 193 million acres of national forests 
there as part of a carbon sequestration plan. This is obviously a key element of President Biden's goal to be zero, net zero U.S. emissions by 2050. The Forest Service is barred from authorizing exclusive and perpetual use of occupancy uh, of that use of land by outsiders. So this proposed change would potentially create an exemption for carbon capture and storage projects. If approved, the USDA could authorize proposed carbon capture storage in national forests as deemed appropriate. In accordance to the publication from the Federal Register, public comments can be accepted until January on the proposed rule. This is looking to harmonize carbon storage regulations with the Bureau of Land Management and look at a potential policy that came into place in July 2022. National Forest System has 154 national forests, 20 national grasslands in 44 different states. The Forest Service administers 74,000 special use authorizations, and they're trying to get this to fit in there as well. Delaney? Yeah, that's been a topic of discussion or was a topic of discussion at the American Bankers Association as well as kind of this carbon sequestration, environmental footprint, ESG. That was a big topic as well as this next one I have here to report on, which is farmland prices and values. As we look at some fresh record sales here, we've got a couple of interesting ones to report As we look at, of course, climbing interest rates, that certainly has not stopped land sales, Tanner. As a lot of extra farm, as a lot of farmers have a little extra jingle in their pocket and their farmland values, which they might be leveraging, have likely increased upwards of 50%, according to Jim Rothermick and others. Uh, Jim said, and we've had him on the podcast here recently, so maybe we'll have to have him back on again, but he said, as far as Iowa, land sales go. He's been keeping a close eye on auctions this month and said November has been the busiest month so far for land auctions. Even though we have higher interest rates and sub $5 corn, it's not affecting land market conditions. He said two different examples of farmland sales he had this year or this month specifically happened earlier this month in Plymouth County, Iowa, where 100 acres sold at $23,600 per acre. And in Sioux County, Iowa, he had about 81 acres selling for $26,000 per acre. And we're also seeing that play through in other states, including Indiana, where Artie Schrader of Schrader Real Estate said that they have seen tremendous, tremendous competition over the last few years and the last few months in particular. And a record was just recently set in Pembina County, North Dakota. Tanner, a 320-acre sale went for, you want to guess how many thousands of dollars per acre this 320-acre sale went for? 17340 I think you cheated, but it was $17,500. Ah. <laughs> uh, I think you looked at that story. It was like the price is right. I didn't want to go over. Oh, well, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, but that certainly is at some new records there for highest farmland sales in North Dakota. And that's the thing about North Dakota is typically they're not going up quite this high as farmland isn't maybe as productive as it is here in the state of Iowa. And this one in particular, Pembina County, is in the very top corner of North Dakota, creeping into Canadian territory, Tanner. Yes, that's uh, very interesting. We're going to see how hot November actually is for land sales. 
We also don't want to forget winter is on its way. So you want to do a thorough and complete inspection of your fertilizer spreading equipment. We look at some updates provided here by Heartland Ag Solutions. It says you want to make sure before you put the equipment away, you do a thorough inspection. First of all, we know that we need to clean this out, especially if you are pushing the end of the application season, avoid frozen chunks, make sure you do a comprehensive cleanup because fertilizers, certain fertilizers can be corrosive. Areas of the box, the frame, the booms, your axles, your suspension, and especially along any potential electronics to ensure that those are not damaged, to remove any debris because that's what can cause plugs next year. Fertilizer dust and granules can be corrosive and those can be an issue there as well. Clean your conveyor belts, oil the chains, check for missing pieces to get your parts ordered now, as we know in-season parts are tough to come by. And then if you can, cover your machine. Cover it up to protect it from any of the winter elements and keep rodents and mice out. And this comes as the winter outlook is projected to be warmer than average. The Nebraska Extension Agricultural Meteorologist says that farmers and ranchers should still be prepared for some extreme weather events, but it will be overall warmer than average. So that's probably gonna involve lots of freeze and thaw events. But as you wrap up your fall harvest season, don't forget about your livestock. Make sure that you are prepared. If any of these systems pop up, we're looking at above average precipitation, which includes snow, rain, and sleet. This may also mean some drought relief as we've been talking a lot here on the podcast, Delaney. However, when we look at when winter will arrive, that's still the golden question. Outlook strongly looks that the moderate to strong El Nino is going to associate with a stronger subtropical jet stream. That looks like winter mid-December will hit most of the Midwest, Delaney. So a couple of warnings there. Make sure you take care of your equipment, get it tucked away, and keep an eye on that livestock as winter gets closer. Absolutely. Tanner, it's going to be uh, an interesting ride here for a livestock as I was reading some commentary this morning and over the last six weeks, we've seen the feeder cattle and live cattle markets drop, uh, specifically feeder cattle drop about $12 per hundred weight here. So heading into some maybe time to plan for risk. And uh, it sounds like some of the big four need to plan for risk on their front as well as we have a fresh lawsuit for meat packers being sued once again over price fixing allegations. This lawsuit was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of North Carolina and Compass Group USA Inc., which is a large catering and food service outlet, has filed a complaint against Cargill, JBS South America, Swift Beef Co., National Packing Co. and Tyson, alleging that these companies limited the supply of meat and colluded together to fix prices in the beef market. The complaint also states that the high concentration in the wholesale beef industry played a role in controlling pricing. Compass also pointed out to the ongoing investigation of the meat packers by the U.S. Department of Justice, which started in 2020, And this latest lawsuit comes after a group of small distributors also filed a lawsuit in October against these same competitors for similar allegations. So there's quite a few different price colluding, price fixing, controlling lawsuits going on right now against these big meat processing facilities. And we're still seeing the Department of Justice investigate as well, although it's been fairly quiet on that front for some time now. 
That's right. Well, I'm going to throw my last couple of headlines together here in a bunch. Over the last six years, Farm Journal conducted a survey to gauge how many farmers are using online crop input purchasing tools. The results are in in 2023. Those 70 years and above, about 23% are utilizing online services. Those 60 to 69, 41. 50 to 59, 19% and only 15% of 35 to 49 year olds and only 2% under the age of 35. So quite interesting there to see that there is a larger adoption of online sales services through those producers that are older in age. We also had election results come through. Ohio seemed to be utilizing voters opinion to approve a lot of different things. They have approved the right to abortion in Ohio. They also have approved a ballot measure that will legalize recreational marijuana. And uh, as far as that goes, we also saw some key uh, governor races to where Tate Reeves of Mississippi won re-election. Kentucky De Democratic governor will win his second term as well. We then pursue the headlines that we try to hit on each Day with uh, what's going on over in the Gaza region. There are targeting continuing the infrastructure and commander's outposts. The Israelis are continuing to look at where they are headed. It's unclear whether they're operating inside of Gaza City, which lies in the north side of the Gaza Strip. But right now there is a temporary evacuation corridor in place today for Gazans to move south, where hundreds of thousands have already fled. Civilian casualties continue to mount, unfortunately, which is why we're looking for a continued call for a ceasefire to do and allow for more evacuations, as well as the White House has announced it doesn't believe that Israeli forces should reoccupy Gaza. Overall, it should be security and responsibility of that region to protect itself. But that's what I have for headlines today, Delaney. Well, Tanner, just a few others here from me. Uh, really just one, I should say, and that is market related. But as we head into today's trading session, and this is the final one we'll see here before the report drops tomorrow for the November Wise Year Report. So we've got a couple of pre-estimates here to share with our listeners. Of course, in October, the Wise Year Report there, USDA estimated a 15 just over a 15 billion bushel crop with a yield of 173 bushels per acre. When we look at the Dow Jones pre-report survey, which analyzes and compiles results from some of the top brokerage firms in the U.S. here, they are actually estimating we see U.S. corn ending stocks and production numbers increase compared to October's report and are also saying that yields will likely need to get up uh, increased here, if not tomorrow, then uh, in a future report, estimates were averaging about 173.2 bushels per acre. So not a huge increase compared to October's number of a 173. But they said, you know, from an anecdotal perspective, a lot of producers have universally said that they were surprised by better than expected yields, considering the limited amounts of rainfall that a lot of the crops received in 2023. For soybeans, the survey expects USDA to Nudge estimates of U.S. ending stocks from 220 million bushels to 221 million bushels. So just a slight increase there, still the lowest in eight years. And the USDA is also expecting or survey is expecting to note that the USDA should reflect a slightly lower yield of 49 and a half bushels per acre 
or the soybean balance sheet. So those are some pre-report estimates there. And we'll wait to see what the report brings tomorrow, Tanner. But in the meantime, what the markets are bringing here as we head into the opening session is higher prices. December corn up six and a half cents this morning at 475. New crop soybeans are up eight and a quarter cent at 1303. As we take a look at the wheat pits today, Chicago December contract up big, 14 cents on the board at 584. December hard red winter wheat up 13 and a half cents at 645 and three quarters. And spring wheat in the December contract up nine and a half cents this morning at 733 and three quarters. Livestock are having a little bit of a different story this morning as the December live cattle contract is down 60 cents on the board at 178.10. January feeder cattle down $1.82 at 228.97. And December lean hogs are trading right about $1.10 lower this morning at 71.77 and a half. But Tanner, I know weather is one of your favorite headlines to chat about, and we're chatting weather and more specifically climate today with Trent Ford, the Illinois State Climatologist. Well, folks, we're talking specifically climatology today, which is a little different than weather today with Trent Ford, the state climatologist for the state of Illinois. Trent, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Trent, I'm curious, how does one find themselves to be a state climatologist? Yeah, it's it's probably a different path for everybody. So um, every state, I think Massachusetts is working on theirs, but every state besides Massachusetts has a state climatologist. And some states like Illinois have had one for uh, going on 50 years now. Um, and in every, every state climatologist has a little bit of a different role, but generally speaking, they're sort of the point person for their state in the terms of climate and, and increasingly so climate change. Um, and so for me, um, you know, my predecessor, Jim Angel, uh, he was in the role for more than 20 years and, and really raised a profile through his great work in, in climate science and, and really also on the, the kind of cutting edge of different aspects of climate change. And, and he retired uh, back in 2018 and the job came open. I'm, I'm from Illinois originally, um, from central Illinois and um, trained as a climate scientist, uh, background in geography, but with especially in climate and um, the job came open and it was a perfect opportunity to kind of uh, keep working on my my uh, love of climate, climate science, and, and especially extremes like droughts and extreme heat, things like that, but do it in a really applied way to help out folks in, in Illinois. Um, so it was really a, just a great opportunity. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I, I bet you're right. I bet it is a different story and path for about every single state. But having Illinois in the focus for the conversation today, how has the growing season been there? It has been a mixed bag, right? Isn't that always the case? Like it, 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 probably the best answer is depends. And that's kind of every year for the growing season or at least most growing seasons. So this year, um, planting went really, really well uh, for most annual crops, just because April and especially May were dry. Um, and so we had, we didn't have a ton of replant. There was some because of some late cold, but um, mostly things went pretty well. And, and that dryness really, I think, encouraged a lot of good root growth, which really helped in the end. June was extremely dry across much of the state. And coming into July, we were looking at 
potentially getting into a situation that was akin to 2012, which of course is the year where most folks in the central U.S. will look at at, at the pretty much the last major drought across that large of an area. Of course, other areas have seen pretty bad droughts since then, but at least here in Illinois, we really haven't seen anything like 2012 since then. So it was not looking great at that time, but we got some uh, really beneficial rains in July across much of the state and then another dose in early August. And that timed seemed to time up pretty well with some critical um, pollination stage and then grain fill in corn as well as in beans. And so you know, then the then um, since then September and the first half of October have been uh, a little bit on the dry side, which is pretty good for harvest. I think a lot of folks are near, if not ahead, of schedule. Um, now it's, it's raining right now, and it looks like the state's going to get some rain over the next few days, and then the cold comes in. So any folks who are still out harvesting may not have ideal weather for it. But you know, all in all, things aren't looking too bad. I you know I don't like to say that prescribe like oh, everything is great across the entire state because it's a big state and there's people who didn't get the timely rains and probably don't have the crop they wanted. But in general, um, especially given expectations around July, things are looking pretty good here. So Trent, I'm curious, what's the difference between a climatologist and a meteorologist and how does that impact your outlook? Like Tanner just asked there about the growing season. Yeah. So meteorologists study the weather, climatologists study the climate. And, and of course we work really closely together and there are meteorologists who focus a little bit more on climate and vice versa. In general, what meteorologists care about most is the weather variability on, on sub hourly, you know, we're talking minute to minute, all the way up to maybe week to week kind of variability. Uh, and a lot of that is based in physics because the physics of the atmosphere um, and how it feeds back with the ocean and the land is is, is really important for forecasting and, and understanding our weather on those timescales. Uh, once we get up beyond that, uh, those timescales, when we think about, uh, you know, uh, the last few decades or the next several months or the next several decades, perhaps, uh, that's when we start getting in the realm of climate and physics matter and climate as well. But really what we're trying to do is summarize weather conditions over longer time periods. And that's what climatologists tend to focus on. So, you know, if, if, if there are undergraduate students who are thinking about going into weather or climate, uh, like I said, the weather tends to be a bit more physics based and um, the climate tends to be a little bit more statistics based. Um, and of course, there's, a, there's overlap between the two, but that's sort of how how those two differ. So when we think about when I think about the growing season, I think about kind of longer term patterns, um, uh, not individual weather events so much, but kind of the longer term conditions. Uh, and, and that's why as a climatologist, I'm really well suited to study drought and monitor drought because drought kind of operates on those longer timescales. Whereas I depend on my meteorologist friends, the National Weather Service and beyond to um, understand things like, um, for example, the dust storm that happened here in Illinois that that uh, killed eight people earlier this year in May, or really intense rainfall event or derecho, things like that. And so that's kind of the separation. But again, we we work together, meteorologists and climatologists all the time to, um, to keep, keep people safe and, and prosperous in the face of weather. I appreciate that clarification, because that really helps with the directions of my next question. So as we look into the, the future of agriculture in Illinois, are you seeing trends? Are you seeing any shifts that may impact what farmers are doing today? Yeah, it's a good question. Definitely in the climate, we're seeing these shifts. The, the big question is, yeah, what what are we, what does agriculture in Illinois look like in, in let's say 20 or 30 years? Um, you know, certainly one of the more noticeable shifts that I've seen is a growing 
a, a kind of expansion northward in winter wheat. So here in Illinois, we have the typical, um, you know, a warm season crop, it, generally either corn or soybeans or sometimes pasture conditions or things like that. Um, and, and, you know, maybe 30 years ago, you wouldn't see much winter wheat in the wintertime north of about I-64, uh, north of, let's say, St. Louis. But I've seen here in Champaign and even as far north as, as uh, you know, north of Peoria and even up to DeKalb, we've seen um, some more winter wheat being planted. And I think it's it's folks starting starting to understand that they can successfully get a double crop bean as well as wheat. But I think also what's helped is that compared to 1970, our growing season on average is 15 to 20 days longer, which means you just have that much more time to try to get that that uh, those, for example, those beans harvested the the wheat planted or vice versa in the spring. And so that's one trend. Um, but you know, beyond commodity crops, something else we're seeing is is really the the specialty crop, the fruit and vegetable production. And in some ways, because of either lack of crop insurance um, as as substantial as the commodity crops, or uh, also because those crops tend to be a bit more sensitive to the weather and climate. Uh, I see specialty growers are really on top of the kind of longer term climate trends that we've seen in Illinois and thinking about what types of cultivars of, for example, peaches, apples, blackberries, pumpkins that they can grow. Um, in some ways, our warming trend here in Illinois can facilitate perhaps a northward expansion of some types of crops like peaches, which are you know historically mostly grown in southern Illinois. Uh, but in other ways, our wetting trend that we've seen across the summer can be um, more conducive to disease and, and, and insect pest outbreaks. And so uh, what it really requires is, is working with farmers, farm groups, extension, agronomists here at the university and beyond to uh, kind of lay out here's what climate change is bringing or, or has brought. And then working how what are the sort of solutions to um, either adapting agriculture or agricultural practices to, um, to to those changes. So certainly we've witnessed some of that, but I think the next gosh the next thirty years in Illinois agriculture will probably be more dynamic than than anything we've seen since probably World War II. Wow, that's really interesting to know that it's going to be that dynamic. And I'm guessing that you know things like the climate solutions, climate smart programs that we've seen funneled out now by the USDA, do those types of programs such as carbon sequestration and others impact the research and the outlook that you have? Yeah, certainly. I don't think they impact my research so much, um, but they definitely impact the outlook. You know, when we think about and this in policy and these kind of programs at the federal and state level are actually they're sort of wild cards because they're really hard to predict. Um, if you know, if you think about what kind of ag policy is going to be created in the next twenty years, when we think about carbon markets, and um, I mean it's sort of the wild west right now. When we think about well, farmers trying to get into carbon markets, but you know, one thing that that can incentivize is the use of cover crops, which we've seen cover crop usage in Illinois sort of grow very slowly, but I would say not nearly the pace that we'd like. I think it's something like between 10 and 15% of, of kind of the typical corn and bean acres have cover crops in the wintertime in any given year. Um, and so something like a carbon sequestration um, uh, or carbon market program can maybe help incentivize more use of that or perhaps a no-till kind of structure. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, just from we see changes in the agriculture system, um, both annual crops and perennial crops from the climate itself, because farmers are seeing the changes. Um, in many cases, it's undeniable, especially with the with the rainfall that we've seen 
Um, but and so some of that just trying to respond to those changes elicit a, a, a an adaptation in agriculture. But then we also have these things like you mentioned, like the policies that can also push um, agriculture systems in different ways. And so that's what I'm kind of talking about when I mentioned the dynamic nature of it over the next, you know, um, it may not even be the next 30 years, the next 10 years, we may see some big, big, um, big changes in the way that we see agricultural systems. You know, something I'd like to see, uh, if you take the Amtrak from Chicago to St. Louis, you know, over the last 20 years or so, you predominantly in the wintertime see bare fields. I'd like to see a lot more green uh, in, in, or at least not bare soil across Illinois in the wintertime, whether that mean more pasture grazing systems, cover crops, agroforestry, um, perennial crops, those sorts of things. Um, that that's a big change that I think that both climate change as well as um, these policy changes can help kind of incentivize. That is awesome to see how much forward looking you are and that knowing that each state has uh, a climatologist like this on our side. If our listeners want to touch base with you or follow up with somebody like you, how the best do they do that? Yeah, so um, I have my. See, it's, it's so silly to, uh, to to say this, but the, probably the best way is to Google uh, Illinois State Climatologist. Uh, I do have a um, a, a website at stateclimatologist.web.illinois.edu, but I can mention how many people are going to remember the the URL. So googling Illinois State Climatologist, uh, and um, and my contact is all on my website there. Email, phone goes directly to my office line, um, and I'm also on Twitter at 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 il climatologist, and so. Yeah, definitely. As people have questions, uh, emailing, calling, uh, DMing, whatever, whatever works for folks, I'm I'm always here. And it doesn't necessarily have to be within Illinois. Uh, certainly, if folks uh, in in places outside of Illinois reach out, I may uh, help them find their own state climatologist or resources in their state because their their state climatologist is going to know more about their state than I am. But um, but yeah, definitely, folks can reach out no matter what. Awesome. Thank you. Well, Tana, that was certainly a great interview there. Thanks to Trent for joining us. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us here once again. With that, let's let the people go.